Well, I'm not a regular reader, but I recently stumbled across an article from the magazine New Scientist. New Scientist was in fact celebrating its 50th year of publication, I think it was last November, and I was intrigued by the lead article. It was entitled, Brilliant Minds Forecast the Next 50 Years. Let me read you part of the blurb for the magazine. What will be the biggest breakthrough of the next 50 years? As part of our 50th anniversary celebrations, we asked over 70 of the world's most brilliant scientists for their ideas. And it really makes a fascinating read. You can still buy the back copy. Uh, Some of the ideas and suggestions that were put forward. So, for example, will it be that in the next five decades, we will finally discover that we're not alone in the universe? Will aliens, some scientists suggest this, will aliens be discovered in the next five decades? Or perhaps, others propose, there will be some way forward in terms of medicine and in the medical field. Will we unravel the physiological basis of consciousness? Or will we perhaps find a breakthrough in some key medical area? Curing an incurable disease, perhaps cancer, AIDS. Along a different line, other scientists suggested that perhaps we'll discover more efficient and lasting ways to harness energy. Or perhaps, and this is the really ambitious who suggested this, perhaps we will finally hit upon a universal theory of everything that the scientists have been searching for. There were many such suggestions, fascinating ideas, within the covers of this magazine. And yet, as a Christian, on reading this, it struck me that there was one possibility which never arose from the front page to the back page. A possibility that was conspicuous by its absence, which evidently never came into the minds of any of these 70 very intelligent men. Hardly surprising, I suppose, given that most of them are atheists or agnostics, that they only thought in terms of human invention and not in terms of divine intervention. And invasion. You see, the prediction that I was thinking of that was absent was that in the next five decades, the Lord Jesus Christ could, might, return to planet Earth as he promised frequently in the Gospels. Now, such an oversight should never be made by any believing Christian. Even although none of us know the day or the hour, in terms of the precise timing, all of us should know that there is a day and there is an hour when the Lord Jesus will return. How do we know? Not because of human speculation, but because of divine revelation. And the fact that in the Bible this is predicted... And the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ himself spoke of his return on many, many occasions. In fact, this is precisely what the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching about 
in the passage we've just read. What is he doing? He's giving the future forecast. He's looking to the future and he's saying that one day I will break through. Be ready in light of my return. So let's open our Bibles again. If you've closed them, please do to Luke's Gospel and chapter 12. Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, where Jesus unpacks this and he presents not an academic doctrine, but something which has relevance for our lives today. And I want to suggest that the first thing that Jesus is saying to us, as he says, live in light of the future forecast, the first thing he says is this, expect the unexpected. Expect the unexpected. It almost sounds paradoxical, doesn't it? It almost sounds a contradiction in terms. Expect the unexpected. But look at verses 35 to 40 and see if this is not what Jesus is teaching. As Jesus tells his parable, it's a story about a wealthy man. We know that he was a wealthy man because he had a number of servants and not everybody had servants in these days. And this man, this master, Jesus explains, he goes off on one occasion to a wedding banquet. And he leaves his servants home alone to do what any good servant should do, to wait for the return of the master and to be prepared for when the master arrives. It may sound like something of an easy task, simply to wait for the master, but there's a slight catch. You see, the difficulty is that the master's return will happen at an unexpected time. Jesus underlines this three times in our passage. First of all, he says in verse 38, that the return of the master could occur in the second or third watch of the night. Not only in the daytime hours, but actually all through the hours of the night. Secondly, he says in verse 39, that the master's return is as uncertain as knowing when a burglar is about to rob your house. Does the resident, resident burglar put a little note through your door and scribble on it? Uh, excuse me, I'm popping round tomorrow afternoon at 3.30, and if you're not in, could you leave the back door open? No, they, they come when you don't expect. If that was not the case, you would have a welcome party for them, wearing nice blue uniforms. And so says Jesus, the master will come at an hour when you don't expect, like a thief. And then thirdly, in verse 40, Jesus links the parable directly to himself. And he says, you must also be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. That's a humbling thing, isn't it? That is a humbling thing to know that we don't know when Christ is returning. To not know something of such enormous significance. You know, when you become a Christian, there are a great many things that you come to know. All sorts of knowledge that you gain access to. All sorts of mystery that you did not understand before. But Jesus says the time when the Son of Man will return is not one of them. However well up you are on your eschatology. You can have as many end time charts as you want 
up on your wall. You can have all the left behind books, the series, on your bookshelf. You can have scoured Daniel and Revelation trying to crack the code, trying to figure out the time, but it's a waste of time to try to determine the precise time. In fact, Jesus says in Mark 13, 32, no one knows the day or the hour. Not even the angels, nor the Son, but only the Father. You see, this day will come like a thief in the night. And so you might ask yourself, well, what's the point then? Uh, Maybe we should just forget about this day then, if we don't know when it's going to happen. But notice Jesus says the very opposite to our expectations. He says, if this return is at an unexpected time, it requires a constant expectation. It makes sense if you think about it. If the servants in the house don't know the time when the master returns, What do they have to be? They have to be ready all the time. They don't know the time. They have to be constantly waiting, constantly watching, constantly ready. Jesus says in verse 35, Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their masters to return from a wedding banquet. We've already said that this meant waiting throughout the day and waiting throughout the night. But also you need to know that in these days, wedding banquets often lasted several days. It wasn't so much the wedding day as the wedding days. Just a little aside, I was imagining, what would this have been like for the bride and groom? You know, your face would be very sore from smiling. But this was no laughing matter for the servants, right? Because they had to wait all through the day, all through the night, always watching, always waiting. Verse 37, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he returns, as opposed to sleeping. There was an old hymn that used to put it, watching and waiting, looking above. And then Jesus says that if you want a good word to summarize this watching and waiting, how about the word ready? Did you notice how often Jesus <coughs> speaks of readiness in this passage? In verse 35, he says, be Dressed, ready for service. The idea was have your cloak tucked into your belt. Because they had these long flowing robes in these days which looked nice but were very impractical for service. You would trip all over them. Tuck it in. Be ready to serve. And then in verse 36 he says, Be ready to the degree that when the master comes, you will be right there ready to open the door. And in verse 38 and verse 40, He just reiterates the idea. Be ready. Be ever ready. Can I ask you a personal question as a Christian? Are you ready? Do you live in a constant state of readiness for the return of Christ? See, we know what it is, don't we, to be in a constant state of readiness, don't we? Uh, Nikki and I, a couple of weeks ago, we had the student team over at our house. It was a pleasure to have them. Whether it was a pleasure for them, I don't know. But you know how it is when you're preparing for guests to arrive. And you get the house particularly clean, unusually spick and span, and uh, you quell the chaos of the three boisterous children. 
And uh, you get the food in the hot oven and everything is ready to go. And the time comes, seven o'clock, and nobody arrived. (laughs) I'm not giving you a lecture on your timekeeping student team, but uh, way behind afterwards. And do you know how it feels when you're just wearing to go? What is there to do with yourself? And you're looking out the window. Is that their car? No. You look at the clock, 7.01. You look away from the clock, and it feels like an eternity. Look back, 7.02. I wonder when they're going to get here. I wonder if this is the right night. And you just want to get their jackets, and when they come in the door, you're just attacking them, you know. Uh, Brothers and sisters... Seriously, are you ready with that kind of tiptoe expectation about the return of the Lord Jesus? Could it be said that tonight your house is in order? Would it be okay if the Lord Jesus returned tonight? Or do weeks pass and we never think about this future reality? Except perhaps when we sing... In the odd song at church. And if so, when the Lord Jesus comes back, will it be more the case of the surprise visitor? You know what that feels like, don't you? Suddenly, a knock on the door. Who's that? It's the senior pastor. (laughs) What's he doing here? Did you know he was coming? I didn't know. And you're scrambling around and you're throwing... Rubbish in the spare room. And you're combing your unkempt hair and children are hanging from the lights. Get down from there. And there's nothing in the cupboard. You know, there's nothing in the cupboard when somebody comes and you really need to rustle up something. But you see, it would have been different if you were in a constant state of readiness for any visitor who was going to come. Are we ready for the Lord Jesus' return in that kind of a way? Jesus says that it will be good for those who are ready. In fact, he says something quite remarkable. He he says, when the master returns, let me tell you how good it's going to be. The servants will be served. It's an astonishing verse, verse 37, isn't it? I tell you the truth. He, that is the master, will dress himself to serve will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. Unheard of. Unknown in Jewish convention. Occasionally you might hear of a servant sitting with the master, eating with the master, sharing in the meal. But for the master to serve the servants? And yet we have a servant king, don't we? We have one who came not to be served, but to serve. And Jesus says, if we're eagerly waiting for his appearing, it will be good. We will even be served by the master himself. I don't pretend to to know everything of what that means. I can't wait to find out. But we'll only enjoy this reality if we're expecting the unexpected. That's the first thing Jesus says as we live in light of the future forecast. 
Now, secondly, notice a second thing he adds. And I think this is almost by way of balance. Secondly, he says, discharge your duties. Uh, Francis of Assisi, uh, you've maybe heard of him. He was a fairly uh, devout monk. He lived donkeys ago. I can't remember the date. He was approached one day when he was gardening. And Francis loved to garden. He saw it as part of his calling. And one day a visitor was in the the grounds of the monastery garden and came up to St. Francis and and, uh, said to him, Francis, if you knew that the Lord Jesus Christ was to return in one hour, what would you do? I guess he thought he would say, go and do some devotions and prayers. But St. Francis thought about it for a few moments and then he said to him thoughtfully, I would carry on gardening. And you see, I think he understood something. I think he understood the fact that Christ's return and our expectation of his return should not preclude us from working until his return. See, remember, that was the mistake of the Thessalonian church. They were so busy watching, waiting, looking above, or they had such a misconception of this, that they gave up their day jobs and they were idling around. Waiting for the rapture. And Paul said to them there, as Jesus says here, this is a nonsense. No idling permitted. And even if we're like Peter in verse 41, and we're not keen on taking responsibility, we must embrace this. Don't you just love the honesty of the Bible? Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? That hard-hitting teaching Jesus. Because, you know, sometimes Jesus, he only spoke to the crowd. And at other times he spoke only to the disciples. Please tell Jesus that that teaching was just for the crowd. At least I think that's what he's saying. It's what we often do when we hear hard-hitting teaching, isn't it? Oh, that was a great sermon this morning for Jimmy. And we assume that God is not, in fact, driving the sword of his word into our hearts. Well, if this is what Peter is doing, if he is trying to shirk responsibility, notice that Jesus places the responsibility back onto his shoulders. He responds not directly, but he tells a story. And he says, the person who acts in the kind of way that I expect is the faithful servant. This chap we meet in verses 42 to 44. This guy who's given responsibility, uh, in his case, it's the, over the food allowance. You see that in verse 42. And it may not be the most exciting task. It's not razzmatazz, but it's an important job nonetheless. While I'm away, the master says, uh, maybe on business, maybe to the wedding banquet, make sure that the other servants have their three square meals a day. It's the master's orders. And of course, the crunch is this. What will the servant do? He knows his responsibility. It's as clear as day. Will he do it? And in the case of the faithful servant, he is found doing his duty. He's doing so, verse 43, when his master returns. And thus, he's being rewarded, in verse 44, for his efforts. It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. 
Here's this guy. He begins only as the manager of the food store. But now, having proved himself, he gets a promotion. And he manages the whole estate. Now, the point of application couldn't be any more clear, could it? That we too, we also must be faithful servants. That we add to our expectation of Christ's coming, that we add to that expectation our exertion, working till he returns. It's perhaps two obvious questions that you need to ask yourself that everyone here could ask themselves this evening. Number one, what are my duties? And number two, am I doing them? It's not rocket science, but I think that's the long and short of it, isn't it? What am I to do? Am I doing it? If you are a new Christian, if you're maybe five years and under as a Christian, probably the first question will dominate. Because you're trying to figure out what are my spiritual gifts. And you're trying to see what are the opportunities. And you're trying to marry these two things together. But if you're a longer term Christian, it's really the second question that becomes more prominent, isn't it? Am I doing so? You see, you figured out your spiritual gifts years ago. You've already found the most profitable areas of service. You know where you click and you know where you don't. That's not your issue. Your issue is being faithful. Year in, year out. Week in, week out. Day in, day out. To survive the same things. The same administrative duty. God bless them, the same children's class. Or the same children, if you're at home. The same pastoral gift you've got to exercise. Another visit. I was just saying to Nikki, coming in the car about this, I like to preach. I really enjoy it most of the time. But some weeks, I don't want to preach. And you're putting yourself out on Friday night and Saturday evening and Sunday morning, every week, every year. Behind the scenes tasks. And does anybody care? The master cares. And the master says, it will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when? When? Not up to the point where we decide to retire, but to the point when he returns. If health permits. See, what's the alternative? The only alternative is being the foolish servant. It's being the guy who fails to take seriously his responsibility. Shirking responsibility. He thinks to himself in in verse 45, the master, he's been away a long time. And already the seeds are beginning to be sown. He's not expecting the unexpected. And soon he's disregarding his duty. It's a pretty terrible inversion, isn't it? Instead of feeding his servants, verse 45, he leaves his servants hungry whilst he indulges in the food and gets drunk in the wine. And what should such a servant deserve when his master returns? Being punished. The master of the servant, verse 46, will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces. And assign him a place with the unbelievers. I wondered when I read that, I thought that sounds awfully like judgment on a non-Christian. 
That's the point, I think. See, this isn't just a little bit of discipline for someone in the household. You see, this man lived within the visible confines of the master's house for a long time. Yet his service revealed how he truly felt about the master. You see, service matters more than we think. And not for the reason we often think. I've changed my thoughts on this in the past few years. I used to assume that service was important for someone to be a growing Christian. Now I think that service is important to be a Christian. What Christian can claim to be so and not serve? What Christian in inverted commas can claim to love the master yet abuse the master's gifts and neglect the master's responsibilities and sit around expecting everyone else to serve them? See, service does not earn salvation, but it does evidence salvation in our lives. It's not an optional extra for a few keen Christians. And so I ask you the question, what does your service say about you? What does your service say, not just to people around you, but what does it say to God? And are you sticking at it? It's maybe not the most thrilling job in all the world, but it's an important job. Maybe it's just the garden. It's an administrative task, but it's important. You see, if we, are, if we are foolish servants and we have been living within the confines of the master's house, so to speak, it will be worse for us. Did you notice that in verse 47? They will be beaten with many blows. Why? Because they came to church. They listened to the sermons. They probably could have got up and preached sermons on the second coming. But it never made one whit of a difference in their life. Didn't transform their heart. Didn't transform their service. And Jesus says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So, it's a serious point. Expect the unexpected. Discharge your duties. We've not to be passive in light of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, and finally, Jesus goes on to add a very appropriate point as we come to communion. Thirdly, he says, know the time. Know the time. There's something to expect, there's something to discharge, and there's also something to know. And what is it? To know the time. Now, this doesn't refer, as we've already seen, to the time of the Lord's return. We don't know that time. We've already established that. It's an unknown quantity. Neither is Jesus uh, saying something like, uh, you need to get a watch and have better punctuality. You know, you've got to understand the time better in that way. Now, what he's saying is that, that we must know the time in terms of the era in which we live. The time, or, or the times, as Jesus says. On the spiritual calendar. You see, as Jesus points out in verses 54 to 56, there is all out confusion in the world about the times in which we live. It's the same today as it was in Jesus' day. People are utterly at a loss. 
In fact, Jesus says you're, you're wonderful people in the way that you can interpret things in the natural world. You can interpret the weather. You can tell from the clouds and the wind when it's going to rain, when it's going to be hot. You're great at all these things, but you're hypocrites, he says, verse 56. Because you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret the present time? And so many people are like that. So many scientists, going back to the initial illustration, are like that. They can tell you all sorts of interesting things. But when it comes to spiritual things, and the period in which we live, what is the present time? What is the present time as Jesus describes it? Because you see, it is our time. Well, it seems from this passage that it's the time between the first coming of Jesus, marked especially by the death of Jesus on the cross, and the second coming of Jesus, which is marked by fire and judgment. First of all, the watershed is the death of Jesus, which is cryptically designated, because this is before the cross, but it's designated as his baptism in verse 50. Of course, Jesus has already been baptized in water. That happened several years before. But this speaks of, a, of another deluge. Jesus has a judgment to undergo. He has a, a death to die on a cross and he will be buried in the tomb. And this will be the beginning of the present time, says Jesus. But then on the other pole, on, on the other part of the spectrum, verse 49, he says, I've come to bring fire on the earth. Remember, John the Baptist spoke, spoke a great deal about that, that Jesus would come, dividing people up, bringing fire, bringing judgment. And so this probably refers, in light of the context before it, to the final judgment. The fire refers to Jesus' second coming, when the servants will be judged. For good or for ill. And Jesus says between these two poles, these two fixtures, therein lies the present time. And what time is it? What is the nature of this period? Jesus says there are two things. And of course, this is as much the case in our day as it was in Jesus. First of all, he says, it is a time of division. Do you think, verse 51, I came to bring peace on the earth? How many of us would have answered, yes, Jesus, you're the Prince of Peace. But Jesus answers, no, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. I will cause division, says Jesus. Now, of course, he's not forgetting the fact that in many senses he came to bring peace. Jesus came to bring peace between God and man through his crucified body. He came to bring peace between people of different backgrounds, uniting them in one body in Christ. And he came to bring ultimate peace at the end of the age, when wars will cease, when wicked regimes will be toppled. All this is true. But what Jesus is saying here is that in this present time, from the cross to the judgment seat, the message of the gospel will divide the world. See, we know this from our own experience, don't we? As people hear the gospel, even in the same family, 
They make different choices. Some of them accept Christ. And some of them refuse Christ. And thus, there will inevitably be ruptures even along family lines. This is just a fact being stated, incidentally. Jesus is not telling us to be obnoxious in our family situations. He's simply stating that this will be a reality. It's not an exhortation. It's a declaration. It's going to be like this. And that's something you need to know if you're not a Christian yet. And and you know that when you do. You know that when you take this step of faith, it's going to create tension. Jesus promised it would. Or that if you stay a committed Christian, the tensions that are already there in your family will continue. Jesus said it would. This will be a time of division. But praise God, it will also be a time of reconciliation. It will be a time, says Jesus, as it were, when you can still settle accounts on your way up to court. And he's especially addressing here some of the unbelievers who were there in front of him. And he says to them, verse 56, Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be, keyword, reconciled. Reconciled to him on the way. Wouldn't that be sensible? If you're heading up to court with your adversary on the way, And you know that when you get to court, he's got a watertight case against you and you're going to get hammered. What should you do? Sort it out. Do everything in your power on the way to be reconciled to him. Because if you don't reconcile, you may be dragged before the judge. The judge will turn you over to the prison officer. The prison officer will throw you into a cell and you won't get out until you've paid the price. What is Jesus' point? He's saying that we should be like this. Not just with our human adversaries, but with God. See, you've rebelled against God as I have. We've all wronged Him. The Bible says, in fact, that human beings, we've made ourselves enemies of God. Adversaries isn't too strong a word. And life is but one short trip up to court. That short walk in the time before Jesus' cross and his return and his judgment. We're going to lose our case, folks. Make no mistake, the judge who is just will condemn us to the man because of our sin. If it gets that far. And Jesus is pleading with you, why not get reconciled on the way? You can go to God tonight. He he won't turn you away. You can say to him, I owe a debt which I cannot pay. But Jesus died to pay the price for my debt. I deserve all I get. But Jesus, God, what I deserve. Forgive me. Let let me be reconciled to you. You know, God, He wants us to come. He really does want us to be saved and reconciled to Him. I trust you'll make that settlement tonight if you never have. 
God is there for the asking. And if you're following Jesus Christ tonight, and you've been reconciled, thank God for that, live in light of the future forecast. Expect the unexpected, discharge your duties, and know the time. See, this forecast is not like the weather forecast, which is pretty uncertain sometimes. It says it's going to be sunshine and it rains. It says it's going to rain and sunshine. Jesus' return is as certain as the fact that he died and he rose again. Surely he's coming again. Are you ready for that day?